Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, today, we're pleased to have on David Cleon, um, who's a sort of uh, freelance writer, scholar, uh, analyst of, I would say, uh, lefty foreign policy, uh, particularly, um, and... Uh, general twitter uh, nemesis of hillary clinton and neera tandon uh and, um, and and don't leave out uh news editor of jewish currents i do have half a job yes i was i was i was just getting you that but yes. but um can, um to maybe to get us started can you tell us a little bit about that because i'm sort of curious like like you know what's the story like i've seen a lot of people i know associated with jewish currents but i you know i know like almost nothing else about it aside from that so, um, so Jewish Currents uh, is, um, we, we actually just got a nice little publicity boost a week or two ago in the New York Times. Michelle Goldberg uh, mentioned us a few times as part of a general revival of the Jewish left in her very good column. Uh, so some, some New York Times columnists are even good. They, they do exist. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I, uh, Jewish Currents has actually been around since 1946. Uh, and has been in continuous print publication since then. Um, but oh, really? uh, yes, yeah. but in its current incarnation, it's it's only uh, I think less than two years old. Um, basically, the longtime editor uh, turned it over to my friend Jacob Plitman uh, and what's now an all millennial editorial staff. Uh, plus a bunch of uh, millennials in media and politics circles who are now sitting on the board along with the old board. So, um, so, so basically it's, it's gotten this new injection of funding and uh, a new staff. And it is, if I may say so, very uh, vital right now. Um, and, and, and I should say, I, I only came on early this year, so I wasn't, uh, on the staff for the initial relaunch, although I did write a few pieces for them last year. Um, but basically, we see ourselves in, in the current Jewish media environment as the the practically the only unapologetically left-wing Jewish publication. Um, if you compare us to The Forward, which has been around for, I think, over a century, but recently ceased its print publication, uh, and its website, as, as we've covered on Jewish Currents, um, is prone toward really outrageous both sidesism. Like they'll publish good left wing opinions, and then the next day they'll publish incredibly reactionary, sometimes racist stuff. Uh, and their opinion editor, Batya Ungar Sargon, who is outspoken on Twitter, uh, she thinks she's serving the best interests of. The Jewish community and the left by doing this, we disagree. It's, it's is is it like the she's like the like the Joe Rogan of Jewish publications? <laughs> I, I would never have thought to draw that analogy, but um, they do have a kind of intellectual dark web sensibility. Now that you mention it, and uh, you know, you could you could draw connections between Batia's approach to politics and Barry Weiss's. Although I think what Barry does is more insidiously clever and certainly more influential but um uh and then there's tablet which is uh, a jewish publication that i think has drifted steadily rightward in over the decade or so of its existence 
Um, and then there's there's other publications. Uh, I, I mean, one I think very honorable exception is is 972 Mag in Israel, which is basically the closest thing there is to to the magazine of the Israeli left. Um, and Haaretz obviously also mm-hmm. publishes a lot of good stuff. But I think that we uh, both in our unapologetic, uh, unapologetically critical approach toward Israel. Uh, without any equivocation, and then also our kind of radical Yiddish um, cultural roots uh, and our our sort of roots in the labor movement and in all progressive and left-wing struggles uh, really set us apart. And we've been able to bring together a community, including with uh, roughly quarterly parties here in Brooklyn, where I live, um, of young, brilliant, very active, uh, very plugged in left-wing Jews. And, you know, it's not religious. It's not specifically anti-religious, but I would say the overall environment is very secular. And, uh, you know, I I spoke to a a recently retired rabbi who came to one of our parties, and he said he didn't necessarily agree with everything that we say, although he agrees with a lot of it. But to see, you know, a few hundred young Jews together in a bar enjoying themselves as Jews uh, was such a wonderful thing for him that he's, he's uh, you know, how, how can we possibly be bad? So I took that to heart. <laughs> so uh, will you be reviewing the Barry Weiss book on how to, how to defeat anti-Semitism? I, personally, I will not be, but uh, yes, we have a review in the works. I, I, I cannot say more right now because its status uh. is not totally clear. It might not work out or it might be one of the most exciting pieces we've ever published. So let's hold off and see. But uh, soon, okay, soon, well, sooner or later, yes, one way or another, we will be reviewing this book. Um, but, yeah, it, but, in the mean, tuned, folks. but in the meantime, I, I commend people to read... Um, Jordan Weissman's review of it in um, Slate, which came out the other day. Jordan, uh, who I know and is, is a really nice guy, um, is not quite as far left as I am or as I think you are, but he's, you know, he's, I would say he's a very liberal Democrat who's left curious. But, and, and as a result, he wrote a very measured and fair review that is absolutely devastating. Um, yeah, and uh, and and I don't want to say any more about it, but people should look it up. We'll link to that for sure. Yeah. Um, so maybe to sort of, sort of like a window into the last, uh, you know, few um, the topics that you've been sort of drilling down on. You you've had this series of articles in the Nation. Um, you got a, a you had a profile of Matt Duss. You know, sort of like broader piece about you know, can, if, can lefty sort of anti-war people make some inroads? And then you've got a piece on the Quincy Institute, which we'll get into. But um, I think a good road into that is the recent uh, closure of Think Progress, um, which was announced on Friday, I think, that they had, uh, you know, they had been trying to find a publisher for it, or they say they've been trying to find a publisher for it, Um because it loses money, quote unquote, um, 
though you know that's always it's like a kind of an odd standard it's like does cap lose money like are they taking in like are they selling you know like merch or whatever to cover near attendance salary but at any rate so they're shut down you know fired a bunch of people and um you know uh think progress for all of its you know flaws uh it was a pipeline for 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 uh lefty um journalists and and uh you know foreign policy scholars eli clifton matt duss uh fez shakir right who's uh, now the campaign manager for bernie sanders yeah um, lots of others Ali Garib. um yeah yeah and so like i don't know what what's your sort of general impression on like what what this sort of means for the stuff you've been writing about well i'm i don't know that it means anything uh well okay let me say first of all that i've been a fan of think progress for a long time uh i was certainly a fan of them in what i think of as their heyday which was roughly obama's first term uh so you know 2009 or 2008 through 2012 roughly but but beyond that as well um back in the days of google reader i used to have think progress in my google reader so i would see all these names go by and i've watched a lot of their alums go on to great things and i'm a fan of a lot of the people who are working there now uh certainly i've I've, yeah i've uh or who were until this week um and i think one misunderstanding that people in the kind of maybe bernie left might have had about think progress uh was it, it was it was seen, I think, as an organ of the Center for American Progress, the largest Democratic Party-aligned think tank, which is run by Neera Tandon um, and was founded by John Podesta. And that's um, a bit simplistic, uh, and it, although it will no longer be going forward, and it obscures what Think Progress was actually about. So Podesta, of course, has many flaws, which we don't need to get into, but from people I've talked to, he did have a kind of a vision, too. Um, and Podesta and, and Nair Tandon were both uh, Clinton administration people. So both of these institutions kind of come out of Clinton world in the early aughts. But um, Podesta was the founder of both, and he had a vision that the Center for American Progress would be the kind of Democratic Party answer to the Heritage Foundation or AEI, the, the major conservative think tanks that developed in what, the 70s or 80s and are still going strong today. Um, and uh, and then that Think Progress would be a kind of answer to the emergence of right-wing media, uh, which I think we can all agree is a very serious problem. And, uh, <laughs> and it would do real investigative journalism and, uh, you know, from an unabashedly left perspective. But Podesta understood what journalism meant, and he understood that this could only work if it had editorial independence. Uh, and so it was blessed with that, and it was affiliated with CAP and supported with money from CAP, which has a lot of money, uh, which we can get into as well. But it was supposed to be independent, and they really did stick to that for the most part. They hired, uh, certainly in that first term Obama year I'm talking about, um, a, a very diverse and independent-minded, and I would say genuinely left-leaning staff, headed by Faz Shakir, who is now running Bernie Sanders' uh, presidential campaign. And, um, and, and I would say that staff was, you know, very progressive across the board. I mean, I think anyone could speak well of um, 
I think progress's coverage of, of the kind of LGBT revolution of those years. Um, I mean, compared to any media outlet, but, uh, but I think one place where they particularly distinguish themselves is in covering the Middle East and Israel, Palestine and, um, the, the war on terror and, uh, the, the sort of omnipresent threat of war with Iran. Um, I think progress really was, uh, dedicated and principled on those issues in ways that did not always, uh, conveniently serve the interests of the Obama administration, uh, or the, even more so, I would say, the, the then inevitable Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. Um, so the problem was that a few years into that version of Think Progress, Podesta uh, stepped down as president of CAP, and his deputy, Neera Tandon, took over, and she, she's still in charge today. And Neera, by all accounts I've ever heard, um, Nira's primary motivation is raising money from corporate contributors and donors. And uh, at least prior to 2016, I would I would say laying the ground for herself to be chief of staff or some similarly high position in a Hillary Clinton administration, which of course we all knew was going to happen. Um, and uh, she repeatedly interfered with uh, with Think Progress's editorial independence. And the most famous incident of this, which was covered a lot online at the time and which I've written about in some of the articles you mentioned, was uh, in, in 2012 when a group of operatives at um, the Neoconservative Foundation for Defense of Democracies and APAC and other affiliated groups, basically what you could call the Israel lobby, um, decided they'd had enough of Think Progress's critical coverage of the occupation and uh, decided to go after it with, you know, all, all the expected insinuations about maybe half a dozen Think Progress staffers being anti-Semites. Um, and rather than stand up for Think Progress and uh, their independence, Nira, according to multiple accounts, uh, tried to get them to stop writing about those topics which she had no real right to do and was also cowardly. Now, why did she do that? I would assume because, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton and Cap uh, drew funds from, you know, very pro-Israel Democrats and pe people like Haim Saban and also uh, under Nira's guidance from the United Arab Emirates, uh, which uh, is a you know reactionary regime that has become a kind of de facto ally of, of Israel, and um, and and she just didn't want the trouble. Uh, you know, she wanted to be able to do things like like uh, like the event she did, kind of friendly interview with Benjamin Netanyahu under Cap's auspices, um, and this led to a bunch of those staffers resigning, uh, and. Honestly, you can go back to this incident in 2012 and look at the battle lines that were drawn with, like, you know, Matt Duss and Glenn Greenwald and Zed Jelani and Lee Fong and, and Ali Grieb and Eli Clifton on one side and Paz Shakir and then on the other side, like, Nira and the Israel lobby and kind of Hillary World and um, Politico and so on. And it sort of anticipates, like, all the major fights we've had about foreign policy since like between 
this kind of neocon centrist dem alliance and then the people who are actually trying to pull democratic foreign policy leftward so anyway just to wrap this up flash forward to this week and um after apparently a few months of trying and failing to find a buyer for think progress cap has elected to shut think progress down and lay off about a dozen people mostly young progressive journalists it, i should note that think progress unionized recently uh, so CAP just shut down a unionized newsroom and is retaining the right to use the Think Progress name uh, and website and publish CAP staffers on it in the future, which to my mind makes this union busting. Uh, they, you know, they fired an entire unionized staff while keeping a media property running, although they're being kind of shady about what that means. Um, yeah, I would note that Neera Tandon has not and not only would I note this, but a, one of the laid off staffers has publicly noted this, uh, has not said a word since uh, Friday morning on Twitter, uh, as much of the media world and virtually everyone who's ever worked for Think Progress has been complaining about the situation and, and mourning the site. Um, and this is, this is, David, why I would quibble with your calling her a coward, because to call her a coward suggests that she has even a vague interest in human misery and suffering, <laughs> that she simply has the, lacks, lacks the will to, to uh, yes, address. Yes, and, and... I'm not so sure that... that... Well, let, let, let's actually give one other example that I think really hits home what you're saying. Um, so I mentioned earlier that, that CAP has taken a lot of money from the United Arab Emirates, which is a matter of public record. Um, I have gotten into some difficult discussions with CAP spokespeople about um, when that started. There's some ambiguity as to whether it started under Nira's watch, as I contended in an article, or earlier, as they suggested, but then retracted. So I, I hope we find out. But for now, I think it is an uncorrected assertion that it started on Nira's watch. And it went on for a number of years, and it ended in the last year after many people had complained about it, but the precipitating incident for it ending was that um, uh, a allegedly a CAP staffer leaked to the media his internal complaints about taking this funding. Now, there's no proof he did this, but, but that is what CAP alleges. His name is Ken Goode. And... Um, Cap fired Ken Good. They fired him right before the holidays after, I think, 12 years of, of service. Um, and uh, and then shortly thereafter, Cap announced, while patting themselves on the back, that they would no longer be taking funding from the UAE. Uh, but Ken Good remains fired. So, um, and, and, uh, and, and actually, as I recall, this happened right before Trump's uh, shutdown this past winter. And there were some amazing tweets in the immediate aftermath of this where Neera Tandon was like, these people have families. They can't afford to feed their families before the holidays. And it was like, <laughs> you absolutely shameless hypocrite. But, you know, anyway, that's who Neera Tandon yeah, is. She, she, yes, an extraordinarily uh, petty and vindictive person as I've experienced yes. personally. Uh, we've all experienced um, when she, it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. E emailed my boss she demanding a, a, a you know correction on something that did not need a correction, and and my boss and her went back and forth for like um, you know several rounds, 
So finally, you know, I just put a little thing in there to be like, okay, you know, near attended says we should say this. Yeah. So that but, was, that was roughly my experience. I mean, when I was doing the dust piece, I, I thought it was only fair to reach out to Nira for comment. And I, I only heard back from her spokesperson who at first said she was not available. But then when I said, okay, I'll say she didn't comment, uh, sent me the blandest, most generic possible um, assessment of Matt Duss's performance at, uh, at at CAP, you know, that he, he did valuable work and has done critical work since or something like that, which I published uh, as being from, from, you know, via her spokesperson. And then as soon as the article came out, uh, the spokesperson emailed me that evening and said, uh, you know, factual correction, uh, CAP did not start taking UAE money under near Tandon. We, we demand a correction. And I said, oh, well, can you let me know when they did? And I was fretting about this all night. And the next morning she emailed me and said, oh, yeah, sorry, actually, you're right. Your, your article was right. <laughs> so she just gave me a bad night's sleep just to haze me. But I have a theory, and I this is purely speculative and may very well not be right. My theory is that she accidentally told me the truth but then realized that she had given me a mm. scoop and that that the public shouldn't know that Cap's been right. taking UAE money that long. I have no idea if that's true or not, but what I do know is they run a sloppy, vindictive operation there and they hate journalists. Yeah. Well, and besides the, the, the terrible, vindictive, just personal uh, failings of moral character... I, I'm wondering how, say, Nira Tandon and, I don't know, Rahm Emanuel, they strike me as very similar, yes. um, how, the, how, how their um, terribleness as human beings is actually bound up with a certain ideological um, understanding of maybe politics power and, uh, and something that is kind of a, a disease among the body politic. Um, just because if I had to think of, like, who would be best to raise the Antichrist, I think Rahm Emanuel and Nira Tandon would be a good couple. I don't know. <laughs> Um, well, that's not part of my theology, but, uh, I, um, uh, I'm just saying, I think they would do a great job. They would, they would understand, they understand power and evil. Yeah, no, I mean, I think in some ways, I mean, ideology is one way of putting it, but I, I think it, another way is that they're just absolutely typical creatures of the beltway, uh, in a way that transcends partisan loyalties. And in fact, the supreme example of that is that, Nira has been courting uh, an active relationship between Think Progress and um, the American Enterprise Institute, the, the famous, famous right. between CAP. Sorry, between CAP, yes, not Think Progress, but although the, they're now one and the same, but between um, CAP, right. CAP and AEI um, doing kind of joint foreign policy work, which apparently CAP does have money for, unlike supporting uh, a, a small independent media outlet. And... Um, but isn't that something that a, that a neoliberal is prone to do more than a other kind of type of ideologically oriented? Person? I mean, yes, but I I think that they are functionally neoliberals, those two people. But I also think that term, you know, is a kind of broad meaning. I mean, in a sense, we all are because we all live under hegemonic neoliberalism, whether we want to or not. Um, I think they're hacks and corporate operatives basically i think i think they're um you know i think i think if if a president hillary clinton wanted like medicare for all then i i think nero would dutifully carry that out but um but there is no president clinton and she doesn't want that and uh 
Cap's Cap's right. job is to serve what the corporate democratic class wants. So yeah. Yeah. And well, and this maybe gets to like a sort of sec- secondary question here. You know, you, t- you talk about DC and I recently moved out of DC. Congrats. I live in Philly now. Thanks. <laughs> although, although I should one say of the it's, reasons... it's my hometown and, and I, I actually think it gets a slightly bad rap as a city, but, uh, but nonetheless, congrats. Yeah, I don't, I don't hate DC, you know, and, and, um, I think if you're not in politics there, it's actually rather pleasant in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but it is very expensive, and the, and being in you know being a political journalist, uh, you are just constantly forced to sort of rub shoulders with a very particular kind of person that I have really never ever met in an, <laughs> any other part of the country, which is the just absolutely sociopathic careerist. Oh yeah, like the the social climber. Who just is like sizing you up in a glance? Like how can how can this relationship, a potential relationship with this person, friendship or what you know, like serve my career goals? You know, like how might I step on your head on my way up the greasy pole? Right, and, and, and and while those people like, definitely exist in every major city, and certainly here in New York, and I would imagine in some contexts in Philly too, there's something about oh, yeah, yeah. how that coexists with a sense of being like really earnest progressive democrats that is really revolting when you when you start to see how it works (laughs) yeah and but you know i i i kind of just think i don't know if there's any way of like changing that or getting rid of it forever you know it's like if you just in a sort of political career you know uh like that's that's what a giant, powerful country attracts. You know, it's like people who want to sort of join the ruling class or whatever, and they just sort of modulate themselves to, uh, you know, the incentive structure. Um, and so, one, you know, one thing you would have to do if you want to, you know, change the uh, foreign policy, um, you know, the get rid of the atrocities, stop committing, you know, war crimes and and invading countries for no reason. You'd have to change that that uh the that career sort of pathway i think or that would certainly be uh uh one part of it to make it so that you know if you want to you know have a good nice career you can't just be you know like that one vp of uh, of uh, at caps foreign policy scholar i forget her name uh, but he was Kelly praising Maxima. yeah yeah praising elliot abrams yes. just this like you know humanitarian fucking you know uh, uh, worker, Mother Teresa esque. You know. Well, she she ended um, up she ended up doing like that that drill tweet uh, about ISIS, where <laughs> where she was like, uh, after everyone got mad at her, she's like, you do not, in fact, have to hand it to him. Uh, but um, yeah, that was that was really embarrassing and, and kind of shocking that like a prominent, theoretically progressive Democrat was like going out there saying Elliot Abrams is a very nice man, as if that matters. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, you know, um, that sort of ties in to this new think tank, the Quincy Institute, yes. which is a very peculiar thing, but they're they're trying to do, I you know, like, I guess because the thing, the thing about it is like, when I, before I lived in D.C., I think like, what's the point of a think tank, you know, like the, these places write sh- like white papers and shit, they're not even peer reviewed, like, what is the point of this? Um, and 
you know, learning is, a, you know, and like trying to do analysis and so on is kind of a point. But I think, you know, it's also about sort of playing power politics, you know, and it's just like something you kind of can't avoid in this, you know, fallen world. Um, so can you tell us about the Quincy Institute and like what they're trying to do with, uh, you know, like change the conversation, for lack of a better phrase? So the Quincy Institute uh, is a non-interventionist think tank. It is not specifically left-wing. Uh, it is right. it is non-partisan, and I think they might say non-ideological. Um, and there are various reasons for that, but one which I don't think we can overlook is that among its founding donors, the, the two biggest and most prominent, uh, although they collectively have given them about a million dollars, so not even half their starting budget, but still... Um, the two founding donors uh, most noted are, are George Soros and Charles Koch, uh, who I think we could reasonably yeah. characterize as being left of center and right of center, to say the least. Um, but uh, and, and, and neither of whom I would say is particularly valorized on the left. I mean, Koch obviously is this libertarian psycho and but Soros is, you know, often seen as, uh, I don't know, a neoliberal I guess the term that some would yeah. use is globalist, which plays right into the many anti-Semitic tropes about him. But, um, but, but you know, I, I think uh, I, I would never in a million years want to be defending Charles Koch or, or the Koch network. And, and I, I want to make clear, I think they are awful people. And I rejoiced when David Koch died. And I will when Charles does too. Um, I think that's only yeah. fair. And I've read Dark Money. I understand all this. Still, I think it's it's worth noting that um, they fund a lot of things, and you know, some of this is obviously trying to launder their reputation. And you know, um, but one one thing that they have given a lot of support to is is ending um, the war on drugs and the war on crime. And you know, I think they the the libertarian think tanks they've backed, like Reason, that have been um, uh, committed to that, I think, you know, have, have genuinely moved the conversation forward. And the fact that there are Republican politicians at, at all levels who, you know, now support decriminalization of drugs uh, probably does have a lot to do with the Cokes. And similarly, they've um, actually been way ahead of a lot of Democratic donors and institutions in trying to wind down the forever war. Now, uh, my friend Alex Koch, who uh, is a reporter for, for a site called Sludge and basically reports on money and politics, um, did, a, did a thing about the Kochs and, and, and Quincy recently where, where he pointed out that the Kochs are hypocritical because they've also done so much to support just Republican politicians across the board. And Republican politicians overwhelmingly are, are very hawkish, pro-war, pro-Israel. Uh, and that's totally true. And I think they've also given money to places like AEI. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Kochs are not good people, and I don't know why one would trust them. But that said, they do have a lot of money, which an organization like this needs to operate. And they do seem to have a genuine interest, even if they undermine it in other ways, in... Uh, supporting anti-war voices, including among powerful elected Republicans like Rand Paul or Mike Lee, or uh, I would say Justin Amash, but he just left the Republican Party, but but nonetheless. Um, 
And I know that the Quincy founders, who are generally, although not entirely left-leaning people, um, are willing and eager to work with politicians in either party as long as they are committed to the goal of winding down the forever war. Yeah, I found this interesting. And, and you know, I don't think anything's non-ideological, but in the piece you wrote, it, you, there was a good point made. And I think the term was, I don't know if it was transpartisan uh, or whatever yeah. it was. Things things can be things can be not partisan insofar as overlapping ideologies don't particularly help one party over the other. And I think like here, th these leftists and these libertarians, their ideologies ac actually overlap in a way that helps them agree on at least this one particular non-interventionist perspective and policy um, issue, right? So uh, the, the thing I found very interesting too was that once you reduce the spending of our defense department, uh, then what you do with that money is going to cause lots of, of differences amongst the people here. It's kind of like, uh, sure, we'll, we'll fight each other at that point. But until then, let's try to, you know, get there. Yeah, right? I mean, you can support the Quincy Institute's work without, you know, supporting uh, Rand Paul's reelection or whatever. Uh, but, um, I mean, you, you don't have to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're you're paraphrasing Stephen Wertheim, one of the co-founders, uh, who said, um, yeah, what, like what, once we cut the Pentagon budget, uh, we can we can decide whether that money would go to you know a giant tax cut for the rich or whether it would go to funding new social programs and Medicare for all. Right. And uh, I'm sure all of us agree it should be the latter. But um, he didn't say that, although I, I suspect he would agree. But um, but but right, uh, right. but but that's not the point of Quincy. Um, the, so where where I think you could run into trouble, and I tried to press him on this, is with something like left foreign policy priorities that are not um, specifically about ending the forever war. Uh, for instance, uh, I've written some things, and others have too, about wanting to cut down on. Um, money laundering and tax havens uh, and, you know, offshore uh, uh, bank accounts and stuff that make it possible for the global oligarchy to operate. Now, do the Koch brothers want that? Uh, I, I doubt it. Um, is that something Quincy's yeah. going to prioritize? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, but, um, or, you know, the most obvious one is, is, is climate. Um, you know, the Koch brothers, the, you know, are, uh, what, what do they have like coal and oil production under their portfolio and um yeah yeah and 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 an awful secondary oil products yeah and an awful lot of their uh their lobbying and efforts over the years have, have been with the goal of a totally deregulated energy industry uh which as we know is rapidly bringing about the apocalypse um and shouldn't that be like a number one foreign policy concern well i think so and stephen wertheim's answer to that uh is that one of many things we have to do to fight climate change is end the forever war. That in fact the U.S. military uh, and Department of Defense are like maybe the most polluting institution in the world, and more than many countries combined. Um, and uh, yeah, like war and the war machine are, you know, have a massive carbon footprint, and that can be. Quincy's contribution to, to that. And, you know, I find that persuasive. I mean, if you look at it in terms of Quincy's job is not to do everything, it's to do one thing, which is end the forever wars for many good reasons, right. then I think it's something that we can feel enthusiastic about. 
And David, can you go to to the point Ryan made in his preface to his question, actually, about what what think tanks actually accomplish and how? Like, how is it that they are influential? So they're given a lot of money, the powerful ones at least. Um, in addition to writing white papers, what is the actual um, mechanism by which they, they're influential in politics, would you say? And then, then we can try to think how, how that would apply to Quincy. So I think the really important role that think tanks play is – uh, in the sort of Washington career ecosystem is as a kind of um, holding tank for for political staffers. Um, because if you think about how Washington operates, I mean, it's a genuinely two-party system, and the two parties kind of pass power back and forth in, in the presidency and in Congress. Um, and realistically, one party or the other is is always going to be in charge. So that means, you know, if you look at the lobbying world in K Street, like a lot of these lobbying shops start up, uh, you know, for just various corporate interests, there'll be like a staffer, a speechwriter, or a former congressman from each party will enter into a partnership and they'll start a lobbying firm because each of them has a Rolodex of, of you know, current um, politicians and staffers they can call up uh, and get favors done for them. And, uh, and they'll always build themselves as nonpartisan. And, you know, when you hear a lot of people in Washington singing the praises of bipartisanship, what they're really talking about, I think, is the uh, ability of, of these lobbying sectors to, uh, of the lobbying sector to, to work with any administration and any Congress on their core priorities. So think tanks, insofar as they are corporate funded, um, and, you know, operate in basically the same geographic space in or near K Street, um, kind of have to be seen as serving a similar role. Um, now, granted, many think tanks have explicitly partisan liens or affiliations. I mean, CAP is clearly a Democratic think tank. AEI is clearly a Republican think tank. Uh, but, you know, you're going to have people who depending on the outcome of a close presidential election, might be serving in the White House or the wider executive branch, or they might not be, in which case they still need jobs for the next four years. Um, and it's not just for the sake of them having jobs. Uh, that's, you know, maybe it makes it sound a, a little bit more cynical than it needs to. I mean, they're also, when they put out white papers, what they're really doing is laying out what what they might try to do when they do get a chance to work in the White House or for a member of Congress. Um, so, you know, this means think tanks, for all that one can be cynical about them, are actually really, really important. Um, because you're basically, uh, you know, when, when, when your party is in power, the think tank is basically where, where the policies they're going to push are being workshopped. Um, I mean, a, a classic example of this actually working across party lines is, is the Heritage Foundation created the blueprint for um, a kind of market-oriented path to semi-universal health care, which then got tested out under a Republican governor, Mitt Romney in Massachusetts, which in turn became the, blue, uh, the blueprint for the healthcare system we all use and love today under Obama and post-Obama. So it, it comes straight out of Heritage. So so these policies matter, and um, the people making them matter and tracking their careers can tell you a lot about how policies that affect all of us are, are made. And with that in mind, to your question of, like, how does Quincy matter, I mean, they, they quite explicitly said, um, you know, they're, they're hoping to be a pipeline for future 
members of Congress or, or current ones, I guess, and, uh, and future presidents. Um, and, and, and doesn't, doesn't it matter a lot that they don't take foreign money as well? So that we know that they take money from Soros and, and Coke, but it seems that a lot of the other of the blob, right? A lot of the other think tanks, um, have a lot of, of foreign money, which for the reasons you just gave seems highly relevant. Uh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, they certainly made a point of that to me, like if you're, um, I mean, it's in particular, I think a lot of these think tanks like Brookings and stuff have been taking money from the Persian Gulf monarchies, which obviously have an enormous amount of money to spend. And, um, you know, when when you take money from primarily Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, um, you know, that's obviously going to bias you toward policies. And I would say personnel above all who are not going to offend those countries and their foreign policy priorities, which tend to be, among other things, um, U.S. intervention for the sake of regime change in Syria, uh, support for Israel, obviously support for status quo energy policies, uh, support for the incredibly brutal genocidal Saudi war in Yemen, and, um, and, and just generally planning for an eventual U.S. war with Iran. Um, those are all things that I think anyone on the left or anyone of conscience should, should oppose. Um, but those are all very mainstream views across the foreign policy world. And I think Gulf Saudi and Emirati funding of, of these think tanks, as well as obviously the, um, elaborate Israel lobby, which, which is very much on board with all of that, uh, is a big reason why. And it's a big reason why we got the Iraq war too. Um, and so, yeah, I think not not taking money from those sources is a kind of gesture. I mean, you could you could caricature this as a kind of America first nationalism, which I think the um, charming neoconservative writer Jamie Kerchick has has done with regard to to Quincy. But uh, <laughs> what, what, you know, the absolute boy Jamie Kerchick, one of our one of our true faves. We we stand a legend, but uh, he, yeah. he he um you know he he wrote a very critical piece, I think, in the Washington Post about Quincy recently, uh, which which they pushed back hard against, where he kind of accused them of being American first isolationists. Uh, Bill Crystal, who obviously is in that world too. Uh, kind of made a similar point when they were announced. Um, you know, it's not fair and it's meant to make them sound racist or Trumpian in some way, but there is a narrow sense in which, I mean, it, it riffs on something that I think is true, which is that this is a kind of broadly realist group, the Quincy's and the, the Quincy Institute, sorry, not the Quincy's, and, um, and they want uh, a... a they want to put the American national interest as they perceive it front and center in foreign policy, uh, which to their mind means not, not uh, whatever Saudi Arabia or Israel say it is. And you see, David, the, the world needs the United States to be its policeman because we all know the model of police helping people is uh, the perfect picture of reality. So <laughs> right. what we need is more policing. Right. No, I mean, uh, when, I, when I think highly efficient, just and rational systems, I think um, police departments as they operate in the United States, for sure. <laughs> this, um, this is maybe... A good point to bring up, uh, Matt Duss. Yes. Um, you know, you you wrote uh, a 
great profile in there and in the nation. And so he say like kind of illustrates one of your points there, which is like he, you know, he comes from Think Progress, which sort of gave him his first gig, if I'm not mistaken. In in uh, it was his, you know, it was his first full time job in policy. Yeah, he had been like free, yeah. freelancing for the American Prospect be- right before that. But yeah, 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 and he he um uh you know had a like very unusual upbringing. He didn't you know he graduated college late, got a master's degree, and and so on, but. Um, he's now like Bernie Sanders foreign policy guy. And I, I would say, you know, someone who's, whose views as I can see them like track very, very close to my own, you know, like a, a sort of, you might call it like a progressive realist perspective and someone who's like, you know, talking about the national interest in so far as you're like, you know, trying to represent you know, needs of the American people first and foremost, and, you know, act humanely in a world and above all, just don't commit any horrifying atrocities, you know? Right. (laughs) Um, And so like, I don't know, can tell us like a little bit about like, you know, how Sanders uh, like foreign policy perspective and sort of staffing has been changed because it's so different from what I remember in 2015 uh, and 2016. Sure. Um, so it seems like a new thing coming up. Yeah. So, well, let me just say first, um, I, this is a slightly semantic correction. I don't really think of Matt Duss as a, as a realist in the, in the formal academic sense of the term, he, not to say he's an unrealistic person. I think of him as, sure, sure, sure. I think of him as basically a humanitarian liberal, but not an interventionist, not a, not like a Samantha power type. I think he is motivated by a sense of human rights and justice that comes from, you know, working in a a Christian, he grew up in an evangelical Christian family uh, and did refugee work in like uh, Southeast Asia or in the Philippines when he was a kid. Um, You know, he he became fascinated with the Muslim world as an adult. uh, And um, I think that's kind of what guides him. Uh, There are people at Quincy, who I do think meet the more kind of Steve Walt version of realism, like uh, Andrew Basevich, their their acting president, and um, Wertheim. But, you know, I think those two worlds, and I think all the people I'm talking about would say this, um, have come to overlap a great deal, mostly since the Iraq War. I think the Iraq War was a kind of transformative moment when a lot of... Yeah a lot of humanitarian liberal interventionist types who had been for all the Balkan wars in the nineties and stuff, um, became big Iraq hawks. Many of them like Peter Beinart have come to regret that very publicly. Um, and, uh, meanwhile, like there were people with maybe similar politics otherwise, who I think saw that as just a, a crime and a, and a fiasco from the start. And, um, and then there were realist Republicans who, you know, might have been the champions of like the first Persian Gulf War in 1991 or, or of a lot of Cold War policies who I'm talking about people like Brett Scowcroft, uh, who, uh, you know, were or Basevich who were completely horrified by the Iraq War from the get go. And um, and so I think both of those strains have kind of evolved into something we might call progressive realism now although no one has really nailed that down. Um, but uh, but as far as um, Bernie's evolution, 
I actually kind of see it as going in three stages because I, I think there's a kind of a prehistory when he's um, an activist and then, and then the mayor of Burlington where he's kind of right. pursuing his own lefty foreign policy. Uh, he, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of like building bridges to the Sandinistas or to the Soviet Union during Perestroika uh, and, you know, speaking out against, I might be making this up, but I imagine apartheid and things like that in the eighties. Um, and, uh, and then when he actually gets to Congress and the Senate, I mean, he definitely opposed the Iraq war, but, um, but I think his focus has always been, and certainly when he became most widely known nationally in 2016, running for president the first time, uh, you know, very focused on inequality, uh, poverty, the 1%, Medicare for all, free college. I mean, that, those are the, things he came to be known for. And so in 2016, he, you know, his 2016 candidacy, as much as it, his supporters, I think sometimes have difficulty fully admitting this was a protest candidacy. I mean, he certainly when he started, he yeah. didn't expect to win. Uh, Hillary Clinton really was seen as inevitable. I think after he won New Hampshire handily, um, there was a brief moment. I, I sort of speculating here, but in his mind and in the minds of the people closest to him where he thought, oh, maybe I can actually do this. And then I think once he started getting losing by blowout margins in states with mostly black Democratic electorates, like in the South, uh, I think it, it became clear to most of us that he wasn't going to win. I, I, I know there are some Bernie diehards who insist that you know, he really could have done it and that it was stolen from him. And I don't think that's true, but I do think the whole thing was rigged for Hillary Clinton several years out. Uh, I mean, and no one else was supposed yeah, to be yeah. a, a serious challenger. And Bernie pissed off the establishment by doing it anyway. But uh, but even so, I mean, she she certainly beat him by a, by a sizable margin, um, which is not in any way to take away from his immense accomplishment at mainstreaming the left and bringing young people into politics that year. And he's been running ever since, since right after the 2016 cam campaign where he did get knocked for not having foreign policy advisors, which was partly because he was running a protest campaign focused on inequality, partly because it was just kind of disorganized and partly because um, Hillary world, part of their rigging the whole process was they basically called up every foreign policy expert in Washington who was remotely democratic sympathetic and said, Hey, would you like to uh, be an advisor on our campaign? And of course they all said yes, because they all assumed Hillary would be president and that would give them, you know, some access to her down the line. Uh, so then she could say, well, look, everyone in the foreign policy world has endorsed me. You know, they must love me. I mean, which is kind of a, a microcosm <laughs> of the entire debacle that was the Hillary 2016 campaign. Just like, everyone good and bad just operating under the assumption that this is the future. I mean, why did Elizabeth Warren endorse Hillary Clinton or sorry, she, why did she not endorse Bernie Sanders and then, you know, eventually endorse Hillary because she too believed that Hillary would be president and wanted to have access. And that's kind of how everyone was thinking. But, uh, you know, why, why was Donald Trump taking a uh, giant, um, why was Donald Trump like negotiating a giant real estate project with the Russian government and um, lying about it to the American public while he was running for president? Because he also thought about life beyond this presidential campaign. He didn't think he was going to win either. Uh, so that's that's kind of a universal. And why why did Barack Obama do 
nothing really to stop Russian interference or, or announce it to the public. Same thing. So, so in, yeah. in terms of Bernie, it was like, okay, there's not really much of a talent pool to choose from. There was some informal network advising him as the campaign got underway. Uh, kind of people like, um, I know Rob Farley is one example. Dan Nexon were like putting together these very informal kind of web email based um, advisory circles and trying to brief Bernie people. But that was that was a very kind of ad hoc effort. Um, but as soon as uh, Hillary lost uh, and we were all in a new reality, uh, it was like a month later, I think, that that Bernie hired um, Matt Duss as his foreign policy advisor, it, and it should be said for his Senate office, uh, you know, not not right. necessarily for a presidential campaign. I believe Matt is still working for the Senate office. Um, but, uh, you know, and since then, Bernie has become very outspoken on foreign policy, and particularly, I think his signature issue has been ending the Saudi war in Yemen, where he's done some really novel things, heavily advised by Matt Doss. Yeah, an actual bipartisan like compromise thing. Oh, yeah. Like you, you know, you never thought you'd see that again. Yeah. Well, and, uh, well, the 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 specifics of that are that the so the first um, senator who actually really stuck his neck out on Yemen uh, in a way that was brave, if not particularly effective, was um, Senator Chris Murphy, the Democrat from Connecticut, who you know because the Yemen campaign started in uh, late in Obama's second term. Um, and the Obama administration signed off right. on what the Saudis were doing on, on providing re- mid-air refueling and targeting information for Saudi jets as they as they bombed the, the Houthis and, and civilian populations in Yemen mm-hmm. and, um, and cut off their port and starved them. And Chris Murphy saw early that oh. this was a terrible thing, but his his bill, which I think he, he co-sponsored with Rand Paul and which only got, I don't know, 20 or so votes in the Senate um, was to stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. That was the approach he took. Um, and what Bernie did and Murphy co-sponsored once Trump took over, which changed the politics of this a lot because now everything we do abroad is evil and it's Trump, even if we were doing it under Obama. And that's how it, that's how Democrats think of it anyway. Um, so, so that changed the politics a lot, but Bernie also, put forward an argument, which you're going to see a lot coming from the Quincy Institute as well, um, a constitutionalist argument, which he's also trying to use to wind down the the, um, war on terror and the uh, 2001, 2002, maybe also 2003 authorization for the use of military force, um, which is basically that all these wars we're fighting in Yemen, Somalia, Niger, whatever, you know, we're never actually authorized by Congress. They all represent executive overreach. And so for good constitutional, you know, conservative first principles reasons, we should we should start reasserting congressional power uh, over the ability to make war. And Bernie's bill, uh, which was sponsored by Ro Khanna, the um, California Democrat in the House, actually made it through both the House and Senate, which was not a sure thing in either case, and then was promptly vetoed by Trump. And it, uh, there's not a veto-proof yeah. majority for it. But that was a huge step forward in, in, in terms of re- reframing the issue and showing how little appetite there is among virtually all Democrats and um, a sizable minority of Republicans um, toward continuing these wars. Uh, and really, I think if, if, if 
Congress looks anything like it does now or hopefully better and Bernie Sanders is president uh, or presumably Warren or some of the others, uh, I think you could very easily pass a bill like that and uh, it would fundamentally change U.S. foreign policy. Uh, that the, I I think it was actually Cap did like a big survey on like like a sort of panel thing with a bunch of you know ordinary Americans on uh, their foreign policy views and and like the o- overwhelming impression was it was just like what are we doing what are we doing with all this bullshit over you know for yeah. this wars that never end like what the fuck man and I feel like that that's a really like durable. Uh, 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 sort of, you know, ground like the blob is just sort of standing on air. It seems to me, in terms of the actual public support for for all this uh, imperialism, you know, nobody wants this shit. Really, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that um, what has allowed it to happen um, above all is fear. And I mean, you know, I'm not breaking any new ground here, but I think everything we've been doing. Uh, I mean, a lot of it has has a long prehistory, but but really, this current era of endless war that we're trying to wind down it comes directly out of nine eleven and this moment of yeah. bipartisan, overwhelming public horror that you know anyone who lived through it I think understood on some level, like uh, this this sense of American vulnerability and people came to their senses at different speeds, but um, but. You know, now we've we've had some small terror attacks or near misses in the last few years, and it's actually been kind of like. Does anyone even remember when, like, there was that that guy who drove a truck on this like bike path in Battery Park City, right near the World Trade Center, like maybe two years ago? Or maybe it was like even near the nine eleven anniversary, and it was like a one day story, and uh, yeah, it, it, like killed a, a few people, but like. It was like, it was, I mean, it's a horrible story, obviously, but it was like really reassuring in a way that like, oh, like, uh, we, we, we aren't like geared up to just invade Iran on any pretext now. Like we're, we're really tired. A whole generation has been killed, traumatized and maimed by these wars. And you know why? And I, that's not like a lefty position anymore. In fact, I, I think I saw Pew survey to the effect that a large majority of veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan believe those wars were not worth fighting for now. So, yep. Um, so, so David, do you ahead. see a difference between a, a Bernie and a Elizabeth Warren foreign policy approach based on who's advising them or, or your understanding of their, their views? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's um, interesting how you said a lot of people have been converging uh, on the liberal left side, uh, you know, in, in recent years, but, uh, I bet you at some point there's going to be an important difference, and I'm, I'm wondering if if uh, if that's something that would be found among these two candidates or, or so not. So I see I see two differences. Um, one is in and and you could maybe analogize this to some other aspects of of the Sanders Warren comparison too. Um, and I should say I, I like and respect Elizabeth Warren, and, and like many left oriented Democrats and progressives, I would I would certainly be happy if she were the nominee compared to anyone else running besides Bernie Sanders. Um, but, uh, and I, I respect her and a lot of the people around her, but, um, one thing is I just don't think she cares as much about foreign policy. I think Bernie, uh, although he didn't prioritize it in 2016, has some history of caring about it, has generally had the right instincts when he has, uh, there was a wonderful moment. I'm sure you remember in 2016 when he 
both defended Palestinians on a stage with Hillary Clinton and um, uh, and also said he he would not be proud to be friends with Henry Kissinger, who is a war criminal, unlike <laughs> unlike her. And I think the fact that he felt moved to say that, uh, which is not like a giant vote getter, it's just a signal about who you are. And I think that said a lot about who he is and who she is. Um, now, Warren doesn't have any history of palling around with Kissinger either. And, you know, unlike Hillary Clinton, is not did not like directly play a role in backing multiple wars and attempted wars over the last uh, 20 years. But um, so I, I wouldn't analogize them at all. But I, I just don't think I think Warren's career really does center on like Wall Street, corporations, um, big banks, like uh, consumer protections. And th- those are the things that get her up in the morning. All great things to, to be concerned about. But um, I don't, I, I think foreign policy has always kind of been an afterthought for her. So that's that's one difference. And then the other is, um, I think, if you're into kind of like reading the tea leaves specifically on Israel-Palestine, which I am, um, I, I think... I don't know that she's like actively bad on it to be in the way that a lot of Democrats like, you know, your Chuck Schumer's are. But um, I think that like most Democrats, it's something she would just rather not deal with and not like alienate any constituents she agrees with on everything else by dealing with. Whereas Bernie, who I've written a lot about this, um, you know, is Jewish, would be the first Jewish president, is like a product of the old Jewish labor left. Um, once worked on a kibbutz for a summer in the 60s, as, you know, Noam Chomsky and Tony Judd and other critics of Israel did. Um, And um, I think has a sincere personal investment in um, opposing what what Netanyahu and and the right-wing Israeli government are doing and in standing up for Palestinian rights. And I, I don't know that, you know, Warren has that same stake or that any of the other candidates do. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, if you look at where she is on things like ending the forever war, I think she, and for that matter, many of the other Democrats running your, you know, I think Buttigieg and Beto and others are, are you know, are, are broadly moving in the right direction. I mean, they see where public opinion is. Um, but, uh, but nobody has hired someone as outspoken on this stuff as, as Matt does. I mean, the Bernie, I think, like actually decided to make foreign policy part of his uh, his package and his persona uh, after 2016, and and I think you can really see that you can see leadership in that regard. Yeah. Do we know who is influential for Warren? Because if she cares less, presumably that gives even more power to whoever is in charge of advising her on foreign policy. Um, right? Yeah, I think. What is his name? Is like Ganesh Sitaraman or something like that. Um, I've 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 heard generally good things about him, but I don't think he has the same connections to like activist circles as um, some of Bernie World. And I mean, granted, Bernie World does with me, but with lots of other reporters too, like uh, Ben Wallace Wells, I think uh, at the New Yorker, has really tried to. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, they've been doing a press push. They want people to write nice things about Bernie's foreign policy. Uh, that, that <laughs> you know, whereas, whereas Warren World, I mean, I would say most of the other candidates are not really doing that. I mean, Biden is being advised by old blob foreign policy hands. 
um, people who've been around forever. And, you know, most of them, I mean, you know, foreign policy is not what most voters care about either in either party. Um, and so when you're running in a primary, it's generally not what you prioritize. Now, you know, an exception might be if, if there's a war mentality, which I think circa 2004 there was. But for all we've been at war for years now, it's, it's really dropped from the public radar, um, which is kind of disturbing in its own way. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the ability of the state to just be able to, you know, it's more and more automated, you know, or, or you're, you know, just these pilots who aren't even in the planes anymore, you know, they're in like a, a, a air conditioned shipping container in like Scottsdale, you know, blowing people up, it's yeah. like totally costless to the, to the, it's except for money. Well, money and years. actually people who've done exactly what you just described, I think have had PTSD over it. Uh, yeah, true, true, true. But yeah, it's, um, it's not like mass conscription, you know, or it's like your, you know, your son and or daughter getting out. Yeah, to, it's out of sight, out yeah. of mind. And you have to wonder, like, how many Americans, how many, like, Americans who read the newspaper every day could even hazard a guess uh, on how many uh, active war zones the U.S. has been involved in since uh, since 9-11, and in many cases involved in right now. When that um, serviceman died in Niger, I assume the reaction of virtually the entire American public was there's a country called Niger, you know, I mean, let alone we have military operations there, but like, uh, that's, that's, that's post nine 11 reality. And that's what, uh, the people we're talking about, I think are trying to change. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's a pretty good place to stop. Anything else you want to mention before you let you go, David, anything you want to plug? Um, I think that is, uh, the gist of it, I, I think people should definitely um, take a look at JewishCurrents.org uh, and subscribe to the magazine. Uh, and um, you know, if you have any connection to Jewishness or to the left or to um, debates over Israel-Palestine and the Middle East, I think you'll find that it's. A, I hope you'll find that it's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, definitely. We'll we'll we'll. Um... Link to that and your nation articles in the description. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming on, David. Yeah, thanks so much. We'll this see you. Yeah, thanks, David. Great talking to you. Yeah. And bye bye, everybody. All right, I'm going to hit.